Last Friday, Barbara and I went to the New Haven Symphony. The first half of the program featured selections based on children's fairy tales, including Beauty and the Beast and Snow White. The final selection was the musical premiere of A Snowy Day. A Snowy Day is a children's picture book written back in 1962 by Ezra Jacks Keats. Keats wrote the book after realizing how few black children appeared in picture books, except as token blacks in the background. So he decided to make his own book featuring a black boy as the star of his own story, with young black readers in mind. The boy's name is Peter. He's around five years old. One morning he wakes up and he looks out the window. Snow had fallen during the night. It covered everything as far as he could see. So like every other little kid his age, Peter puts on his bright red snowsuit and he goes outside to play in the deep white snow. He makes footprints. He builds a snowman, a smiling snowman. He makes snow angels. He slips and he slides. And then he goes back inside to his apartment. After his mother removed his wet clothes, he settled into a warm bath, and while he was bathing, Peter thought and thought and thought. That was my favorite line of the book. He thought and thought and thought about his life and what he experienced out there in the snowy white world. That was the whole book, just a little black boy playing in the white snow. Snowy Day was the first book featuring a black child to win a medal for excellence in children's picture books. Fan letters to Keats came from numerous African-American activists, educators, and children who had included their own artwork. One teacher told Keats that for the first time she watched as children selected brown crayons for their self-portraits. Now, sadly, 60 years later, we live in a country where leaders of 36 states are introducing bills to ban books in schools by black authors whose main characters are black adolescents. Age-appropriate books about race and culture. Books about teenagers having their own deep thoughts and thoughts and thoughts about the snowy white world just outside their window. And the reason stated for banning these books is that they teach critical race theory, which they claim promotes anti-American, anti-capitalism, and anti-white values, making white students feel uncomfortable. As a result, educators would be disciplined or fired if they teach that American historical figures were not heroes, if they challenged the Constitution, or describe racism as a permanent aspect of American life. So what exactly is critical race theory? Critical race theory is an academic discipline that is more than 40 years old, and it is widely misunderstood. The core idea is that race is a social construct, that racism is not merely the product of individual bias or prejudice, but also something deeply embedded in our culture, our legal systems, and our policies. This is why, in December of 2020, Connecticut became the first state to require that all high schools offer African-American studies and Latino studies, starting this year. 
and Native American studies next year. Let's be clear about this, guys. Banning books by black authors featuring black protagonists is all about bleaching school curriculum. It is about whitewashing American history. It is not at all about protecting children. Rather, it is about protecting white privilege. Two years ago, I received a letter in the mail from my denomination telling me that in order to keep my ministerial standing, I had to attend a three-day conference on white privilege. And I have to tell you, my immediate reaction was insult and anger. How dare they suggest that I need racial training? So I went to that conference ready for battle. After the third session, the class was asked to offer an evaluation at which point I looked out the window. I looked out the window and I thought and I thought and I thought about my life. And then I looked around the room at my colleagues and I said out loud, my name is Richard and I'm a person who has reaped the benefits of white privilege my entire life. When I was a young boy riding in my mother's grocery cart, no one accused my mother of stealing when I reached out and snuck candy off the shelf. When I looked at the artwork on the walls of my Sunday school class, I felt special and included because the paintings of Mother Mary and baby Jesus had white skin just like me. When I was in junior high and high school, I learned all about my race. When I got my driver's license, my parents did not have to give me the talk, the talk about if you get pulled over, keep your hands on the steering wheel at all times. When I walk down Church Street at night, I do not see people in parked cars rolling up their windows and clicking their automatic door locks. When I forego the crosswalk, as I often do, my wife will tell you, when I forego the crosswalk and run across five lanes on Elm Street after 9 p.m., I don't have to worry about someone thinking I just committed a crime. So what does all that have to do with church and why a sermon about it? Because American Christianity has a long history of ignoring and thereby endorsing white privilege. A very long history. In his biography, former slave and statesman Frederick Douglass recounted how his master, Thomas Ald, had a conversion experience. It happened at a Methodist camp meeting in 1832. Following this, Douglas harbored the hope that Ald's conversion might lead him to emancipate his slaves, or at least be more kind and humane. Ald was fanatical about his piety. He prayed morning, noon, and night. He gave personal conversion testimonies at tent revivals. He opened his home to traveling preachers. Sadly, at the same time, he used his newfound faith to punish his slaves. In Douglas's words, I have seen him tie up a lame young woman and whip her with heavy cowskin upon her naked shoulders, causing the warm red blood to drip. And in justification of his bloody deeds, he would quote scripture from the Bible. He that knoweth his master's will and doth it not shall be beaten with many stripes. Now, as much as Douglas was scornful about Christianity, and he had a right to be, he wrote this, the widest possible difference existed between slaveholding religion of this land 
and the pure, peaceable, impartial Christianity of Christ. Slave Master Ald used scripture to justify his actions. Surely he could have, he could have quoted the Apostle Paul instead. Slaves, be obedient to your masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. And masters, do the same thing to them. Give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Slave master all could have also used Paul's words from today's second reading. He could have lived by these. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, I wish I could stand up here this morning and say that Paul was an abolitionist. Unfortunately, he was not. As much as he implored masters to treat their slaves kindly, he had no issue with slave ownership because it was deeply embedded in his culture. In other words, Paul believed we are all personal slaves for Christ, however one could still publicly own slaves. You see what happened? And how it continued to happen with the founding of America? Good God-fearing people believed in individual conversion, but not in cultural conversion. Christianity was all about saving the individual soul, and it had nothing to do with saving the soul of a nation. This kind of widest possible difference between personal morality and social ethics is still happening today. In their book, Divided by Faith, Michelle Emerson and Christian Smith wrote, Historically, white evangelical theology is individualistic and interpersonal. It stresses both a believer's personal relationship with Jesus Christ and the way that forgiveness from God impels forgiveness of others. As a result, white evangelicals' understanding of the race problem tends to be rooted in beliefs about individual decisions and shortcomings rather than the way that the broader social forces, institutions, and culture shape them. Willie Jennings, professor at Yale Divinity School, believes that at its root, the division between individual conversion and cultural conversion is all about land. It's all about geography, and I think he's on to something. Theologically, it began with the story of Israel's so-called inheritance of the promised land. The same promised land metaphor was invoked to colonize this country. A colonization that happened on the backs of newly arrived slaves from Africa and great tribes of indigenous people. In the 21st century, this colonization is called zoning. It is where we get the expression comfort zone. All police practice follows zoning. It follows zoning policy, all police practice, including vigilante police practice. Case in point, on February 23, 2020, Amand Arbery went on his daily jog, and on that day, he decided to run just a little bit further. So he crossed the East River, running through a mostly white community, a few miles from his Brunswick home. And the result, as all of you know, was tragic. Running out of his neighborhood, out of his zone, cost him 
his life. Now, I got to tell you, I think of that incident every single day when I take my morning run with my dog, Luna. I was told when I moved here that Hill House Avenue was the best place to run in town, which meant probably the safest place to run in town. Hill House Avenue is famous for its many 19th century mansions, including the President's House at Yale University. Mark Twain described it as the most beautiful street in America. Today, it is still the Champs-Élysées of New Haven, in addition to meticulously cared-for mansions now owned by Yale. It has bluestone walkways and perfect country club grass. I have never seen a scrap of litter on the street or a single homeless person. It feels very much to me like a gated community. And it is beautiful. And I love walking my dog there, and I'm going to continue to walk my dog there. But it doesn't work for me to run there because it's only two blocks long and I run three to five miles every day. So here's what I do. I go to Hill House Avenue and from there I go down under. I descend onto the Greenway and run north. With every mile the neighborhood, the zoning, the demographic changes. By the time I get to New Hallville, the neighborhood is largely black. But you know what? Unlike Amand Arbery, I can run through their neighborhood and not one person there is making unwelcome negative assumptions based on the color of my skin. Honestly, truthfully, the first time I ran through New Hallville, I felt a little afraid. And my fear was a symptom of my white privilege, a fear that is the opposite of freedom. But now, after running there every day for six months, I know more people in that neighborhood than I do anywhere else in New Haven. There is Van the Seamstress, who on her days off converts old children's winter coats into dog coats. She donated two of them to our coat drive over Christmas. Van also knits scarves for homeless people. If you frequent the green, you will see them tied to lamp poles and benches on cold winter's day all around the green. And then there is Jake the Snake. He and his band of mostly older men roto-root drains all over New Haven. And they are a blast to talk to. And lastly, there are several elderly black women who walk their little dogs daily. Just last week, when they saw us running by, they shouted out in unison, Luna, hi, Luna. They know her name, but not mine, but that's okay. So today, when I run through New Hallville, instead of feeling fear, I feel free. I feel a palpable freedom in my body and my soul and my bones, the freedom of diversity. And this freedom, as Professor Jennings has pointed out, happens in integrated neighborhoods and on public property. Hence the beautiful New Haven green. Without the green, New Haven would be just another racially divided patchwork city. So I love sitting by the fountain in the late afternoons with Luna talking to people from all walks of life. And I love looking over at the city hall and seeing the Amistad Memorial, a public billboard commemorating the trial and freedom of those African slaves. And I love this church. 
I love it because it founded this town. Because it stands at the very center of the green where faith and culture intersect. A church which for decades ministers and members alike believe that individual conversion must always lead to cultural conversion. Way back in 1790, Reverend Dr. James Dana, minister of Center Church, preached a sermon to the Connecticut Society for the Promotion of Freedom. In it, he reviews the entire world history of slavery, calling it unjust, unchristian, and against the principles of the American Revolution. In 1825, Leonard Bacon was called to be the minister of this church. He was just 23 years old. The day before his installation, he looked across the green and he witnessed the last slave auction in New Haven. A mother and her daughter sold to pay off a master's debt. From that day on, Reverend Bacon dug in and devoted his preaching to the abolitionist cause inspiring Lincoln himself. Bacon faithfully preached sermons in favor of civil disobedience, namely the Christian obligation to assist runaway slaves. And it was during one of those sermons that a woman stood up, stomped down that center aisle, and slammed the door. She slammed the door because she believed there should be a slam door between private conversion and cultural conversion. But Reverend Bacon preached on. So what's the end vision here? What should Christianity be striving for? Well, I thought, and I thought, and I thought about this. And then I remembered Isaiah's end vision. The beautiful vision of a public mountain with an international feast, where there's no zoning, where the slam doors separating nations and races will be no more. Listen to his words. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. I like that part. And God will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all people, the shroud that divides people, the sheet that is spread all over all nations. And he will swallow up death forever. He will wipe away the tears from all faces And the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. (laughs) 